Well, good morning, Matthew chapter 9. Let's just start as usual with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask for your special blessing again as we come this morning to consider your Son and his ways. We know, Father, that you, by inspiration, recorded the record of his life and his being in a special way, in a way that you knew would help us in the generations to come. We who, having not seen him, love him and believe in him. We pray, Father, then, for your opening of our eyes and for your blessing of us as we seek to know him and to make him known. For his sake. Amen. Right, Matthew chapter 9. Well, the theme we're going to develop in this study of the first part of this, this chapter is, <clears throat> is the, the humanity and the reality of, of the Lord Jesus. Start off there in Matthew 9 verse 1. Jesus entered into a ship. Now, the gospel records record the Lord entering into a ship about 15 times. And you, you ask, well, why is that? And the disciples were, not all of them, but, but many of them were fishermen. And I, I just wonder, and this is just speculation, but all the same, you'll let me uh, have my speculation. Um, I wonder if they, as professionals, who've been used to climbing in and out of boats all their lives from, from little kiddies, uh, whether they climbed in the boat the way a fisherman does, and the Lord Jesus climbed into the boat the way a non-fisherman does, maybe with some awkwardness, because it wasn't just walking a plank, it would have been, uh, you know, lifting up your long flowing robes and putting one leg over first and then pulling the other leg over, etc. I wonder if it's, uh, it's just a little insight into his humanity, that why 15 separate incidents uh, is it recorded that the Lord got into a boat? There must have been something about his body language that lodged very deeply within their, within their memories. I know what they wrote was under inspiration, but all the same it is a reflection on, on the human side of how they saw him and how they remembered him. And straight on in verse 1, they went over and they came into his own city. That's another window into his humanity. He had his own, his own city. And the same term is used in Luke 2, verse 3, about Joseph going to be taxed in his own city. Now, <clears throat> verse 2, and behold, rather missed out in some modern translations, but there is this idea of lo, or behold. And I have suggested, and I will probably suggest, God willing, in future studies, that you can imagine Matthew at times as a cameraman, shooting a movie. It's as if sometimes he, he takes the, the whole uh, scene and then sometimes he, he zooms right in. He zooms in on the Lord Jesus and right onto his body language. And so, behold, this is like a signal. Behold, watch, look. They brought to him a man who was uh, paralyzed or, or sick of the palsy. Now, when we read that they brought it to him, that is the, the technical term, uh, certainly in Hebrew and would have been reflected in, in the translations into Greek and Aramaic, uh, to bring something to, that the term that's used here specifically means to bring an offering, to bring something in sacrifice. But this man who is brought to Jesus is paralyzed. He's not the right person to be offering as a sacrifice. The point is, of course, that the Lord Jesus accepts all these, all these people. And so we go on uh, playing what Harry Whitaker used to call Bible television with, with the record, that it's written in such a way that it is a living word. And we can imagine the Lord Jesus uh, and these whole situations ongoing at this time. So they bring to him uh, a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And the Greek word balo that's translated lying means literally to be thrown. They'd thrown him onto a bed, and uh, the Greek really means actually a table or a couch. In other words, they grabbed whatever they could use as a stretcher, maybe a table, and thrown this man quickly onto it, uh, and they go running off to, uh, to Jesus with this man. And all that comes out, certainly in the original uh, of, of the record. This is a living word that is bringing the Lord Jesus live before us. In the days before people could make movies, 
uh, trying to reconstruct the, the Gospels and the, the life of the Lord Jesus, all they had was words. And so the record is written, I su- suggest, in a wonderful way to try to bring out the, the urgency and the passion of what's going on. And when Jesus, verse 2, saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, be of good cheer, be happy, uh, be comforted, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus forgave the sins of that man because of their faith. Now, this is a ladder with which to reach the stars. This really is a, a fundamentally challenging idea, that human sin can be forgiven in this case because of the faith of a third party. We've seen these guys, these friends of his, uh, really did believe, oh, Jesus is in town, right, let, let, let's throw him, quick, man, like, pick up this paralyzed guy, threw him, uh, I said the Greek word balo, translated lying, on the on the table, it could be translated, uh, threw him onto a table, anything will do, let's get him to Jesus as quickly as possible. Now, the same words uh, are used <coughs> uh, for sins and forgiven in, in, in James 5, verse 15, where we have the same idea that you can pray for somebody and it may be that they will be healed and their sins will be forgiven. Now, James, I've suggested earlier as well, the earliest uh, writings after the, the, the Gospels, and it's full of allusion to the actual Gospel records. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he, if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. This is uh, in the context of healing the sick by faith. So, the similarity of the language, the same Greek words used there in James 5, seem to imply that this wasn't just a historical record. This living word, this living record of the Gospels comes through to us, that we likewise can pray for others and see their forgiveness and even their healing. Now, if this is so, that the prayer of a third party can result in forgiveness and in healing, I'll tell you this much, we should be on our knees for others all the time. That's why when you read Paul's letters, all the time, in every letter, he says, I'm praying for you guys. He doesn't say guys, but, you know, he says, I'm praying for you all the time. Now, that's how it has to be. You see what I'm saying? This is a huge challenge, absolutely huge challenge to us, that if my prayer can be a factor in your final forgiveness, healing, and salvation, then I must be praying for you all the time. And if your prayer for me can be a factor, and of course, salvation is multifactorial. I, of course, it's, it doesn't just depend on having good, good friends. Uh, but all the same, if salvation is purely a case of a man facing off against his God over an open Bible on the table in front of him, uh, who shall stand? The point is that prayer for others must have some some uh, role to play in their final forgiveness, salvation, and even healing in this life, to the point that if maybe those prayers were not offered, then a certain outcome would not have happened. When you think about it, it really has to be that way, because otherwise, what is the point of praying? If God is saying, look, no, I just deal with each man and woman facing off against me over an open uh, Bible on a table and how far they've transformed their lives according to that, and uh, etc., then what's the point to pray for each other? You know, what is the point? Prayer would then lose meaning. But the fact that we are to pray for each other, earnestly and continue in prayer for each other, surely this means, surely it must mean that it can play what I would call a, a factor, a certain percentage in the final equilibrium, in the final equation of individual human salvation. Now, God in his wisdom has set up the path to his kingdom for each of us in that way, so that, so that, we not only will uh, mix with each other, go to church, uh, but that you will share with each other your particular needs in, that you need others to pray for, and you likewise will have a ministry of prayer for them. There's uh, fantastic implications here. And the same Greek words for sin and forgiven, you find in what to me is a very enigmatic passage, but I'll quote it in John 20, verse 23. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. Now, that would seem to imply 
that forgiveness of a third party uh, to some degree is delegated to us. Yeah, this, of course, opens a whole wider wider case. If, if you don't forgive me, it doesn't mean that God isn't going to forgive me. And likewise, if I don't forgive you, it doesn't mean God's not going to forgive you. But I just wonder if this is an allusion to the same uh, principle that I, I'm trying to, to, to uncover here from, from these, these words in the Gospels, that to some extent, you know what I'm, I'm struggling to say, uh, to some extent, a factor in uh, final forgiveness is the prayers of others. So the bottom line is, so you read this story, you think, well, it's pretty lucky that this guy had some good friends. Uh, yes, it is, and that is one of the blessings of Christian fellowship, of mixing with each other, and not, as I say, simply talking about the state of the nation and uh, and the weather and all the rest of it and all the riffraff that goes along just with uh, being in a community, as in a church community, uh, but actually having deep and meaningful spiritual connection with each other, uh, sharing these issues. Well, the Lord says to him, be of good cheer, according to the AV, be comforted, be happy. And the same term is used later in the chapter, in verse 22, when the sick woman is told that because of her faith, she can be of good comfort. Now, I wondered what the connection is there. The woman is told, be of good comfort, be of good cheer, your faith has saved you. And here, at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord uses the same language to this man, but with a slight difference. He says, be of good comfort, be comforted, be happy, because your friend's faith has saved you. Basically, that's what's being said. So then, I think what the point is of these two people being put before us, the paralyzed man here, then the sick woman later on, the hemorrhaging woman later on, is that the effect of a lonely individual person who has their own faith in the Lord, in a sense, is paralleled with the person who is not recorded as having believed, but has other people who are, as it were, believing for them. Now, of course, you can't drag people screaming and and, and resisting to God's kingdom. I accept that. But what I'm saying is that that you can play a factor in the final outcome of the the walk to God's kingdom of many of those who would like to be there but are simply weak. Isn't that all of us in the church? We're not atheists. We'd like to be there. We're not being dragged, kicking and screaming, in a sense. We want to be in the kingdom. I assume, I think that's true. Uh, but we are weak, and we need each other's prayers. And we need to share, therefore, with each other, our, our prayer needs. Now, the Lord says to him, first of all, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, okay, buddy, I'm healing you. He, first of all, forgives his sin, and then he cures him. And it's as if he's making the point that for me, Jesus, it's all one and the same. But the point is, I, I think, that it is spiritual healing which is of ultimate importance, is, which is of first importance. And it's very common with sick people and those who have to care for them that there is this, this desire for healing and for getting better which can become so dominant that actually... Our personal need for forgiveness and salvation can sometimes be eclipsed, I mean, understandably in a sense, but it can be eclipsed by that. And the Lord is putting all of us back uh, to the, the right order of priority here. The fact he says to the man, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him, I think you could, in this case, draw a, a, a connection between his sins, whatever they were, and his illness. There is a connection between sin and illness. That is not to say that all illness and all sickness is related to sin. Not necessarily. It's part of being human. And of course we think of the passage in Isaiah 33:24 that, that says that in the time of the restored Zion, in the kingdom of God, the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick, for the people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Now, the connection is so strong that I think the Lord is saying, look, in essence, the time of the restoration has come, and I'm here amongst you. Now, 
Let's assume that this man's sickness was related to his sin. Because I think that is how uh, the, the record seems to lead us to, to understand it. Now, in that case, in that case, we marvel again at the Lord's grace and also the faith and insight of the, the friends. Because normally when people are sick because of sin, there tends to be the attitude taken to them that, well, it's their fault. It serves him right. Um, she did that and so so and such and such happened to her. Well, yes, there you are. If you will uh, spend your life doing drugs, if you will spend your life as an alcoholic, then you're going to get cirrhosis of the liver. You've dug a hole and fallen into it, so there you are. But wait a minute. We have all dug holes and fallen into them. Every sin is not excusable. Every sin was avoidable. And just one sin, just in the, you know, in the uh, inverted commas, that just one sin leads to death. That's the lesson of uh, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. So the whole point is that we should not have that attitude ever to anybody, that, well, you dug a hole and fell into it. Sure they did. And so have I, and so have you. And all the way through, if we can sense the, the depth of our own failure, our own sinfulness, we will never feel and act like that to, to other people. It's as simple as that. Verse 3, And behold, certain of the scribes and Pharisees said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Again, behold, it's as if the, the zoom on Matthew's camera comes right in to them, to their faces. And he sa- it says that they began to say within themselves. There's a huge emphasis in the New Testament upon thinking or talking within oneself, especially within the Gospels. Just read you a few. Matthew 3, 9, think not to say within yourselves. Uh, verse 21 of the same chapter 9, the, uh, she said within herself. Jesus says, Matthew 16, why do you reason within yourselves? The husbandmen, Matthew twenty-one thirty-eight, said within themselves, this is the heir, that is the uh, uh, disciples are told, Mark nine fifty, have sought within yourselves. The Pharisee of the parable in Luke 7 spake within himself. The guests began to say within themselves. The rich fool thought within himself, saying, let's get bigger bounds. The unjust steward said within himself. The unjust judge said within himself. And that's just in the Gospels. In other words, there is a huge emphasis, and these are not all, uh, even in the Gospels. There is a huge emphasis in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, upon self-talk, about how you talk within yourself. The idea that we have that Satan, the adversary, is ultimately our own inward thinking, our own self-talk, that's absolutely right. And even if that uh, figure of speech, that metaphor, that great big parable, however you want to to, to term the use of Satan in in the New Testament, however you want to term it, even if it wasn't there, okay, the idea that the real essential problem and the real issue in Christianity and Christian mind and thinking is how you think within yourself, right? That, that much would be clear anyway in the text. I've just read a whole load of examples just from the Gospels, and they continue, believe me. Um, if you look at my commentary on, on Matthew, you, you'll see um, a whole even longer list. So when we find that actually the Bible uses the idea of Satan, the adversary, in a kind of figurative way, parabolic way, a metaphor, uh, some huge kind of word picture of this uh, this personification, if you like, of this self-talk, of this thing that's going on inside our head. Yeah, that's that's totally logical and fits absolutely seamlessly in place 
with the huge emphasis which there is in the, in the scriptures upon talking within yourselves. Now, I used to think that I, I was a bit crazy because I, when I realized I, I talked to myself all the time. Then I realized everybody does it. <laughs> and uh, that's part of being human, talking to yourself. The point is, of course, what you talk to yourself about. That's the point. Where is your heart? That, that, that's the essence of Christianity. That really is the essence. <clears throat> now, Jesus, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts, and this is not the first time in the Gospels you will read this, that Jesus is mentioned as knowing their thoughts. Matthew twelve twenty five again. And time and again we're told in the, in the Gospels how Jesus perceived things about people. Now, <clears throat> how did this happen? You, it, you could say that because he was the Son of God and had the Spirit without measure, that there was sort of a zap of Holy Spirit that just told him what that bloke over there is thinking. If that's possible. You can say, one could never say that's not what happened. But there is, in most of the records of him knowing what was going on in the minds of people, there is the implication that there was a process where he kind of twigged on to what was going on. And he was the son of God, don't forget. And as the son of God, he would have been an intellectual beyond compare. Um, and perception and sensitivity, not always, but can go along with intellectuality and intellectual ability. So I would think that all this knowing what people were thinking was actually an outcome not only of his intelligence, but of his huge sensitivity as a person. Because he was the ultimately sensitive and perceptive person. And therefore he was able to understand and guess what was in their minds. And in verse 4 in the RV margin, uh, we have Jesus seeing their thoughts. Because he could see from their faces, from their body language, he perceived it, what they were thinking. Now, the sensitivity of the law to others is, again, a, a huge challenge to us, because we all tend to, to like the idea of being the good Christian, being the caring person, but then we, we get tired of people and we ret retreat inside ourselves and put our shell down for the night or for the day or for the week, and that can be it. But the Lord's continual sensitivity is, is wonderful, really. Now, he, he says, um, why do you think or ponder is the word, and really is the idea to keep thinking about, to keep planning, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, <clears throat> the idea of poneros, the uh, Greek word used here, uh, differs somewhat from, uh, from the idea of sin. You are thinking up, pondering an evil plan. That is the idea. Now, what was the evil that they were thinking up in their hearts? The evil act, it seems to me, it was the crucifixion. It was, right back then, relatively uh, early on in the ministry, there was this bitter jealousy that led to the idea of let us kill him. Every time you suffer from jealousy, and there is nobody who has ultimately not suffered from bitter jealousy on behalf of somebody else, you are fellowshipping the cross because in a practical human sense, what ultimately was the reason why they killed him and why they planned so carefully to kill him, it was growing bitterness, jealousy and resentment over an extended period. You suffer that, you're absolutely fellowshipping the sufferings of Jesus. And if we suffer with him, let us Paul say, we shall also live with him. So then, <clears throat> verse 5, what is easier? And I think he means easier for me. What is less work is actually the literal sense of the Greek there. What's easier for me to, to, to forgive the guy or, or, to, or to heal him? That's, that's the idea. 
Now, there were, there's always been in every human society people who claim to be able to do healings. But the idea of forgiving sin was, of course, of a totally different order. And in that is the uniqueness of, of the Lord Jesus. And that's where he stood out from every other miracle man or woman that has ever been, that he introduced this spiritual element to the whole thing. So he says, okay, now arise and walk. I've forgiven you, so get up and walk. These are the very words used by Peter when he tells the lame man in Acts 3, uh, verse 6, to arise and walk. So often Peter consciously or unconsciously replicates the, the healing style of the Lord. Like, for example, he, he offers his hand uh, to, to uh, Tabitha and, and, and others that he heals and, and lifts them up exactly like it's recorded that the Lord did. Now, I think, <clears throat> I, I would suggest, that Peter was not necessarily consciously trying to be a copycat on Jesus. I think that he had so absorbed the spirit of Christ that he ended up speaking and acting in a similar way to him. And this, as I say, is the essence of Christianity, that we are to absorb him there into ourselves. And God has given us the gospel records, these four slants and angles on the Lord, uh, to enable us to do that, so that he might become us and we might be him, so that we might absorb him into the very uh, texture and structure of human thinking, personality, language, uh, body language, etc. So that, to me, is the explanation of the similarities between Peter's healings and those of, of his Lord. And he says, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralyzed man, Take up your bed and go to your house. That you may know. Now all activity of the Lord is in that sense multifactorial and has got multiple reasons. In one sense, this man was forgiven because of the faith of his friends. In another sense, the Lord did this so that you, Pharisees, audience, so that you might know the extent to which I can forgive. In other words, things may happen to people, including good things, as well as bad things, for the benefit of others who are beholding. A classic case of this would be Job. Job 1 verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. End of the book of Job, pretty well the same thing is said. That man was perfect. So you think, so why drag the bloke through all, all the, the hedge, you know, drag him through the hedge backwards? Why all this kind of stuff if in the end, according to God's estimation, the guy is the same at the beginning and the same at the end? Well, it was Ted Spongberg who first put this to me many years ago now. Uh, the, the whole reason uh, for all this was for the benefit of the friends and for us and for the Satan, whoever the Satan was, be it an angel or a jealous worshipper or whoever. Now, we're always seeking to attach meaning to event in our lives and the lives of others. Why ever did God do that? Why did God let her die before a time? Why this? Why that? And we suffer with this and we struggle with this. And over things great and small. Very small even. And one window onto this, and it is not the only window, but one window onto this whole issue of attaching meaning to event is, could simply be that, to some extent, these things happen so that our example is there for others. And you get this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 very clearly, where Paul actually says that everything you suffer is so that you may be able to comfort others in their sufferings. So there is a meaning to suffering, although that meaning is maybe not clear to the end of our days, uh, and uh, only in the kingdom age will we, will we perceive it. So this is, a, as I say, a, a window on all this, that this man, the whole incident with this paralyzed man, was maybe not only for his own sake, but it was actually a witness to these fallacies. Because you know, Jesus really wanted to save them. You know, he says to Peter, uh, to, to the um, 
the man healed from leprosy, to, to go and offer the sacrifice Moses commanded for a witness to those people. There's a number of incidents in the Gospels where the Lord does really try to make a witness to them. And you know what? It worked. Because in Acts we read, after the Lord's resurrection and ascension, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And there was such a phenomenon, we read in Acts, of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, believed in Jesus. So how's that for a hopefulness in witness? And we need that encouragement, don't we? Because I think we all give up, well, we tend to give up in making witness because we say nobody's interested, nobody's responsive. So he then says, verse 6, to the uh, sick of the palsy, to the paralyzed man, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Again, you see Matthew's camera, as it were, is on how Jesus is talking to the, uh, the Jews and then he turns and talks to the, uh, the paralyzed man. Take up your bed. <clears throat> I suggest that uh, the, uh, the, the, the so-called bed was really a table. I said the, the Greek word carries that idea, and whatever, it would have been a piece of wood. He says, take up your, your piece of wood, basically, and go. And it's the same word, take up, that he uses, Matthew 16, 24, about taking up your cross. So you can see how it all sort of opens up. Um, he was given a simple task of obedience immediately after this encounter with the Lord. And I think that's often what happens after baptism, that we can be given a simple task of obedience. And in subsequent meetings with the Lord. Go unto your house. And he arose, verse 7, and departed unto his house. He was exactly obedient to the, to the word. Um, <clears throat> but I think you also see... Here again the lovely, lovely, altogether lovely sensitivity of the Lord Jesus. Go to your house. He could just imagine how the poor guy was going to be surrounded by all sorts of fascinated people. Oh, so what sin did he forgive you? How does it feel? Uh, what does it feel like to be able to walk? Oh yeah, is your right leg better? Is it really your right leg as good as the left leg? Jesus could foresee all that. It's rather like when he cures Jairus' daughter. He says... Give her something to eat. It's just lovely. His sensitivity, his imagination uh, of, of human feeling and situation. And this Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Lord with whom we have to do. The multitude, verse 8, marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. I began by pointing out in verse 1 how the Lord went to his own city. And it seems that the, the, the humanity of the Lord is really being emphasized. They had no idea that he was a God, as Trinitarians like to think. They marveled that God had given such power unto men. If the uh, classical Trinitarian idea is correct, that the Lord Jesus was a pre-existent uh, being who, like a divine comet, uh, sped to the earth and came here for 33 years and then sped off again, well, he rather failed in his mission, mission then, I, I would say, or either that or he was grossly deceptive if people who saw him doing these miracles, after they saw what he did, they glorified God in heaven for giving such power unto men, Jesus the man. Now, that is exactly our non-Trinitarian understanding of things, exactly as it was theirs. But if the, this Trinitarian idea is correct, then I can only say either the Lord failed to, to explain who he was, and they failed pretty dramatically, or uh, he simply was downright deceptive. He, he showed himself to be someone who he actually wasn't. Uh, it makes far more sense to believe exactly how they did, that, well, God has given power and authority unto this man, and therefore I glorify God in heaven because of this man. Just like Philippians 2, that talks about the high exaltation of the Son, so that the Father might be glorified. So then Jesus passed forth from there, verse 9, and sees a man called Matthew sitting at the receipt or at the, uh, the booth or the, the table, an elevated table uh, of custom. Now this is Matthew's gospel. 
it's as if Matthew on his table has got a video camera. And it's just picking up Jesus as he passes forth from thence and starts to zoom, uh, starts to come towards the camera. He says to him, follow me. Now, I've said that the, the gospel records are transcripts, really, of the preaching of the gospel that was typically done uh, by, let's say, Matthew. So the gospel according to Matthew is the account that he gave as he went around teaching and preaching, and eventually that account was written down and became the gospel according to Matthew. And so you see here how really he talks about himself from outside of himself. And I think you see there really a pattern for us that our preaching is fundamentally about the Lord Jesus. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. And yet also we back that up by a personal testimony. It must be like that. Now, I wonder whether he was, in fact, a scribe. Why I say that is because in the other gospel records, he's called Levi. And uh, the scribes were from, <coughs> were from the, the Levites. And in Matthew 13, verse 52, he says, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The, the scribe who becomes a disciple. Just wonder if that was Matthew. But then, what's he doing collecting uh, tribute? Seems to me that he, he might have been a scribe who uh, went the other way, who, who left all that and got in with the Romans and became a tax collector, who, of course, was totally uh, despised. Now, Humanly speaking, tax collectors were hated, and to have on your team, your preaching team, a tax collector, like, no way. From a PR point of view, that was just awful. A collaborator, someone who's despised by everybody. A bit like saying, well, on our preaching team, we've got a, we've got a, a couple of hookers and a, and a pedophile and a couple of lesbos. Like, oh no, or X, you know, whatever, X, all those things. You say, oh, no, no, you know, that, that's not, that's bringing the truth into disrepute. Well, actually, no. Because the Lord's example is very much of picking exactly those kinds of people and turning them into something. And, of course, he, he explains this um, in, in verse 11, of course, they, they kind of comment on this, his critics. Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? People like Matthew. And uh, the whole point is that he ate with them in order, as he says in verse 13, to call the righteous, to uh, sorry, to call the sinners to repentance. We can never, I think, in, in uh, certainly here in Europe in the 21st century, understand and feel uh, the degree to which in 1st century Palestine to eat with somebody had such huge significance. If you ate with somebody, this was a religious act, and you had to be very careful with whom you ate. Now, the Lord ate with sinners in order to call them to repentance. It wasn't as if he was saying, look, if you get up to this level, then I'll fellowship with you. I'll break my bread with you. I'll have table fellowship with you once you get to this level. He said, look, I'll fellowship with any of you. I'll break bread, I'll break my bread with you people who are sinners or so far, uh, as it were, in order to call you to repentance, because that was his explanation. Or the argument about with whom one breaks bread. This is what has wrecked, absolutely wrecked, community after community of believers. Church, ecclesia after ecclesia, and ultimately has wrecked life after life. As ultimately the protagonists even in these things, although they've been exposed to all this all their lives, bit by bit turn away from real spirituality as they get older, as they're exposed to this. Whereas the Lord is so different. He clearly, he clearly did not see any guilt by association 
any contamination by communion, as I was taught in the church of my youth. He didn't see that. In fact, absolutely, radically, the very opposite. He broke bread with people, he fellowshiped with people in order to call them to repentance. Now, he sees himself as a, a doctor, as a healer, and he is wanting to bring people to repentance. So, yes, it's not that he's saying it doesn't matter how you live. He's saying, I am here to call you to repentance. And you could understand the calling to repentance as a calling towards repentance. When we looked at Matthew 3, verse 11, we discussed this. Uh, where John the Baptist baptized people unto repentance. He didn't say, hey you, Johnny, are you repented? Get your life straight? Okay, get under the water. He baptized people unto repentance. That this is a, a journey, this is a process towards. It's rather like forgiveness for us, I don't say for God, but for us, forgiveness, it seems to me, is a, is a process. And it is the same, I think, with, with rethinking, repentance. This, uh, I don't think, necessarily happens over every incident, every issue in a moment. This is a process. And the Lord's fellowship with us is to call us to that. And he says to the, uh, that the Jews are so, so critical there, verse 13, uh, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's why I've come to call the righteous, uh, to, to, to call the sinners to repentance. And if you look where he's quoting that from in Hosea 6 verse 6, it's in this terribly messy story of Hosea and Goma, this prophet of God who marries the, uh, the prostitute Goma. And although in one sense it is the story of Hosea's feelings about Gomer, as we know, it is all representative of God's feelings for Israel. And you can also, uh, you get that very clearly at the start of Hosea, and then the, the emphasis seems to shift off Hosea as you go through Hosea, uh, through the prophecy, and it just seems to be talking about God's feelings about Israel. But actually you can reason back from God's feelings about Israel, as they are explained by Hosea later on in the prophecy, you can reason back and see that actually that's, that's talking about Hosea's feelings also about Goma. Extra information about their relationship. So when he says to her, sorry, when God says to Israel, I will have mercy, not sacrifice, this is very much um, Hosea's feeling to Goma. I will have mercy, hesed, covenant love grace, the, the love which comes from having formed a, a covenant. I want that rather than sacrifice. Rather than, back in the Hosea Goma situation, rather than you simply appearing to be my wife. Rather than you coming with me to offer the sacrifices uh, as my wife and showing to everybody that yes, we're married, look, I'm not bothered about that. I want you to show me love. I want you to show me chesed, this, this covenant love, this is translated mercy. And I, I think that the Lord is saying the same here. You, you Pharisees, you who appear so righteous, you're no better than Goma the prostitute. And I would so love that you would show me covenant love, real love, rather than external sacrifice. And in what is that external love, uh, that love that he's searching for, is, is shown in acceptance of others. That's why he says, he quotes this verse, I will have mercy, not sacrifice, in the context of explaining why he fellowships with sinners. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John come to him and say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? Well, you can see there's a connection between the disciples of John and the Pharisees. These two groups were getting together. And I think that that sets the whole scene for what the Lord is going to later say in verse 16 about you can't mix the Old and the New Covenant. You've got to break apart. 
uh, you'll, you'll break apart. You've got to completely give yourself to the new wine, which is the new covenant, and you've got to have a completely new garment. And why he says that is because the context is this verse 14, that the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are getting together, and they come together against Jesus and say, uh, why do we fast and your disciples don't fast? On one level, you could say, well, that's an indication that the disciples of Jesus were very secular, non-religious people. And he picked these secular, non-religious people in order to turn them into something. And I think that should be a pattern for us, that we're not so much about trying to get people from one church to another, get people who believed in Jesus uh, and, and knock their doctrine into shape. Yes, we should do that, and I certainly spend a lot of time doing that. But I think the greatest thing is to take someone who is a complete unbeliever, who is just the secular person, and bring them to Jesus and turn them into something. Because that's the pattern of Jesus. It doesn't mean he did not appeal to the Pharisees. He did. But the bulk of his work was an appeal to secular people. But just think on this from another perspective. Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount that when you fast, don't let other people know that you're fasting. Anoint your head and so forth. So it could be that the the disciples did fast, but they just didn't show it. And so the Lord was talking here to the disciples of John. Now, John had told his disciples, you've got to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm just uh, preparing the way. When Jesus comes, you've got to follow him. If I were Jesus, I would have said, listen, you say you're disciples of John, right? Okay. John the Baptist told you to believe what I say. I told my disciples very clearly in my Sermon on the Mount that they should not show others that they're fasting. And you should not give the impression that you're fasting. Now, why then, therefore, do you come to my disciples and criticize them for apparently not fasting? You ha- you're not really disciples of John. I would have said that's a very strong, logical argument that would tie them up in knots. But the Lord is more gracious than that. He doesn't use what to me would logically have been the most logical, powerful argument against them. He doesn't do that. He reasons with them on their own ground. Um, And he he says, well, actually, they're not fasting because they're so happy, because the bridegroom is with them. And, of course, John the Baptist had described himself as the best man and Jesus as the groom. And so he's continuing that. He's talking to John's disciples in terms they would understand. He says, verse 15, look, my disciples are the what the AV calls the children of the bride chamber. They're so happy, they're so thrilled that the wedding's coming. Of course they can't be quiet. Of course they can't uh, uh, start fasting when they're so happy. Now, you know, the truth was probably that they were just secular people. And uh, it could be said when, when the Pharisees say, so why, why don't they fast? might have even been talking about the fast of the Day of Atonement, which was the one fast which the law of Moses required. And the Lord is, as it were, I think, really making excuses for them. He's saying that they're so happy. Um, They can't possibly mourn because they're so happy that the wedding is coming. Now, later on in his parables, the Lord actually says that the wedding is already and the guests don't come. And so, actually, the the wedding is sadly going to be delayed. And yet, here you sense the hopefulness of Jesus. On one level, he knew that was going to happen. On another level, he's saying, look, the wedding's about to happen. They're so happy. And he could say that legitimately, because he hoped against hope that that would be the case. Now, this Jesus, who hopes against hope, who is not just naively positive, as some some people are, but who genuinely hoped against hope for a response to his message. This same Jesus is the one who has these hopes in us. That every day he's hoping that we are going to be or do uh, something for him. And as I say, in our witness, what, what tends to militate against continuing in witness 
is the sense that no one's interested. We lose hope, and yet the Lord's hopefulness was absolutely amazing. <clears throat> and his positivity, as I say, about about the disciples, that they really um, were, were as, as he says, um, mourning, uh, sorry, but, but as he says, they were rejoicing because uh, the wedding was about to happen. Well, you know, really, he's just being very positive about them. And later on, Paul puts that in more theological language when he says that righteousness has been imputed to us, that God and Jesus look at us as if we are righteous, although we are not. And so this is, of course, if this has been done to us, if we have been counted righteous, the very least we can do is to have a positive outlook on each other. And as I say, the Lord's attitude to the disciples was exactly that. But he says the day is coming when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and they shall fast in those days. Don't assume that that fasting is not for us. Don't assume that it was actually just part of the law of Moses. It it really wasn't, apart from on the Day of Atonement. Uh, And yet it's quite clear from the Old Testament that fasting... Uh, featured in the lives of God's children, but not because of obedience to any letter of the law of Moses. So try fasting, miss a few meals. And of course, Isaiah talks about the spirit of fasting, which is to give up that which is legitimately yours. It is legitimate to eat. But to give up that which is legitimately yours is for our, our spiritual growth. And I I would say that all really creative thinking and action tends to happen outside of the human comfort zone and outside of um, just going along with the usual pattern of human life. And I think the idea of the need to fast, I think is, uh, or the idea of fasting, um, is just part of that overall picture of getting out of the comfort zone of uh, dropping the idea that I have legitimate rights to this, that, or the other. So, God willing, next time we'll pick up with the uh, the piece of, of new cloth. But when we do pick that up with the piece of new cloth in verse 16, just remember this connection that's been made between the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. And the Lord is saying that, no, you can't have a foot in both camps. There's got to be a radical break. And that, of course, is an overall lesson and principle that we can take away into our lives.